they would call him faggot and they would talk about his, you know, what his sexual preference was. They would just call him all kinds of names and tell him that they were going to lock him in a room with five of the boys. In 2018, Jessica Yana started working at Davidson County Juvenile Detention Center in Tennessee, a facility run by Youth Opportunity Investments, or YOI, which is a for-profit company that runs juvenile detention centers across the country. My career path was juvenile probation. I have a soft spot for these kids, so I needed hands-on experience working with the kids before I could get hired on with the probation department. But she quit after just four months. Jessica said the staff at this facility were abusing the kids. It was so bad, in fact, that she filed a lawsuit against the facility in late 2019. They were just beating him black and blue, and there was no way to hide it. One of the worst incidents involved another kid who was accused of being gay. He wasn't gay, but a lot of the boys would call him that. A lot of the staff would. The staff didn't like this boy, so they would pay the kids with, like, ramen noodles or chips, hot chips or sodas. To just beat this boy up for out-of-share entertainment. Jessica said the abuse wasn't just physical. One thing that they would do that would really, really hack me off was um, at night on second shift when the kids went to bed, they would wait for the boys to use the restroom. They would turn the water off so they had to sleep with their feces festering in the toilets. So they had to breathe that in all night long. Now, Jessica's lawsuit states that YOI emphasized the importance of reporting all staff misconduct when she was hired, and she claims to have filed countless grievances against her fellow staff members. It earned her a reputation. I would report, and then the next day when I would come in, everybody knew what I reported. It made it very hard. There was a motto in there, back the black. So we were black shirts, so back the black. If you didn't back it, they were going to make your life miserable till you quit. Jessica recalls the backlash she received for speaking out against her coworkers. You don't speak on what happens in there, and you back the staff members and not the kids. Everybody has each other's back, and the kids are always liars. They would warn me they were going to catch me in the parking lot. I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll see you out there. The school to prison pipeline pushes kids out of school. We need to have a transformation. Putting me in a jumpsuit. Police in no counter. You're locked up without bars. That's our job. Like, that's what we are here for. If you've listened to previous episodes of Kids Imprisoned, you'll understand that things aren't always up to par within the juvenile justice system. And while many detention centers have seen improvements in the last 20 years, life inside juvie may be a lot worse for some kids than what we see on the surface. In this episode, we're unveiling the cracks in the system. We're talking about what really goes on inside those fences and the abuses that happen behind closed doors. I'm Katie Seifer, and this is Kids Imprisoned. Prisoned for kids. Gangs of kids. Kids, man. The punishment can be up to 40 years. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. My colleague, Matthew Henley, has been looking into incidents involving youth in juvenile facilities. Hey, Matthew. Hi, Katie. So, Matthew, start us off. What should be happening inside these facilities? Well, that's a great question, Katie. So, we've seen a drastic shift in the last 20 years in how we view kids 
who commit crimes. So they're less likely to be tried as adults. And the focus is supposed to be on rehabilitation rather than punishment. So when a kid comes in contact with the juvenile justice system, the role of the system, according to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, is to be both just and beneficial to the kids. So the end goal is reintegrating them back into the community. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So at least there is somewhat of a vision for what the system should look like and should be like. Right. Okay. So now what are some of the things that are happening that slip through the cracks in these facilities? Okay. So in many facilities, our reporting has revealed cases of abuse, like in Jessica's case, as well as sexual assaults, mistreatment, cruel punishments, days in solitary confinement, and so forth. And making matters worse, a lot of these kids, Katie, are already dealing with mental health issues. Our colleague Franco Latona has spent the last four months investigating employee misconduct within the juvenile justice system. So, Franco, what's going on inside these facilities and where is this abuse coming from? Hey, Matthew. So it's coming from all different directions. And one thing we learned with Jessica's story is that abuse can come from other kids, but it can also come from the guards. So is this abuse of power by facility employees something that is impacting a large number of kids in detention? Yeah, it seems to be that way. So what we found through our reporting is that staff misconduct in detention centers, both state and privately run facilities, is rampant. And it's been going on for years. If you look at the state of Georgia, for example, they reported over 2,000 incidents of staff misconduct over the past five years at their seven long-term detention centers. And what exactly is considered misconduct? So it varies by state. Now, an official from Georgia's Juvenile Justice Department defines staff misconduct as, quote, any activity or behavior of an employee, contractor, or volunteer that seriously threatens the ability of DJJ to fulfill its mission, directly threatens the health and safety of the employee, youth, and including cursing at a youth, or others, or involves an issue of trust or honesty. They did note that harassment will not be coded as employee misconduct. Okay, so it's a little vague. Are there any states that report these numbers consistently? Yes, so they all report the numbers, but what we found is it's very difficult to get our hands on the data. So we reached out to about 20 states, including Georgia, for these numbers. But less than half actually responded with the misconduct data. Now, if the entity in charge of overseeing youth prisons fails to make changes, it can lead to lawsuits like in Jessica's case. Attorney Brandon Hall represents Jessica Yano, a former Youth Opportunity employee, who this year filed this federal lawsuit, claiming numerous unlawful activities within the facility by the staff. There is no accountability. So there's nobody holding their feet to the fire. According to the lawsuit, Jessica reported PREA violations almost immediately. That's P-R-E-A, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And it refers to sexual misconduct in Justice Department facilities. And despite reporting misconduct to her superiors, the lawsuit states that Jessica continued to witness PREA violations almost every shift she worked until she quit including female staff members having sexual relationships with underage male inmates. You know, some of the boys are in there and they're looking at a a very, very long time and the female staff are throwing themselves at them. Okay, so, wow, to break that down, female staff members are actually often the ones engaging in sexual misconduct with 
male inmates. Yeah, right. Not exactly what you would expect. No, not at all. So News 21's Haley Parker has been investigating sexual assault in juvenile facilities and has more on this subject. Haley, what are some of the things you found in your reporting? So we found an overall decline in sexual abuse and assaults in juvenile facilities from about 9% to 7% since 2012, according to a survey by the Bureau of Justice Statistics that also happens to be the only nationally collected data on this subject. But that statistic also may not tell the whole story because some facilities still report high numbers of sexual assaults. Plus, there is likely a large number of assaults that go unreported altogether. But I still think that there are also hurdles, uh, which they would also admit to their own reporting. You know, sexual abuse of any kind, even with the best reporting system, is always underreported. That's Brenda Smith, a former commission member for the Prison Rape Elimination Act of 2003, also known as PREA. This act is the first and only national standard for how facilities should report and handle any form of sexual abuse in any facility, juvenile, adults, immigration, or otherwise. And it is because of PREA that data is even collected on this issue at all. I think that what the Prison Rape Elimination Act has done is it has strengthened or made more robust the Eighth Amendment understanding of what cruel and unusual punishment means. What the Prison Rape Elimination Act stands for is that you can't, you know, somebody in custody can't consent. And consent is often one of the main points of contention when it comes to sexual abuse in juvenile facilities. I I think we need to be cautious about the numbers because of the way research just is in general. You know, we, we have to be concerned about how the data were collected because it's sensitive. It's really, you know, painful information. Eileen Allen is an assistant professor of criminal justice at Penn State Harrisburg and an expert on sexual assault research in youth detention centers. She says the facilities in the juvenile justice system are a breeding ground for these types of abuses. I think the prison environment is just conducive to assaults of any kind. You lock up people in a confined environment and you take away their liberty, you take away their privacy, you take away, you know, their right to a sexual relationship. You know, they're in confined conditions that are ripe for violence. And I think that's just something that's going to always be there. But what Eileen pointed out is that the violence takes a different shape in juvenile facilities. What we see in adult prisons is more of the younger inmates being preyed on by the older. With youth, there's a very short age range. So there's different dynamics and and stuff. In juvenile facilities, staff relationships with inmates make the situation more complicated since kids often don't recognize that assault is happening depending on the community that they come from and what has been made normalized to them, regardless of if it is lawful or consensual. They're programmed to trust adults. If an adult is saying that this is okay or this is normal, or, you know, they're trying to comfort someone. It is. It does have that line of, well, what's appropriate, what's not? Have they experienced the same sort of victimization in their past and that's just normative to them? It, or is it manipulative by the detainee? If I'm in this relationship, I'm going to be treated differently. So there's so much to kind of unpack. And I, I don't 
doubt that she believed she was in, you know, a loving, consensual relationship. That happens in uh, among adults as well. But I mean, think of it teacher-student. There's that level of, you know, I have something over you that just kind of twists that relationship. Whether a kid sees the relationship as normal or not, Allen says it's both manipulative and illegal. You know, it's never okay for someone underage to have a relationship with someone overage, let alone having that power differential of coercion. Um, you know, any type of relationship like that is, is coercive because of that differential. PREA requires staff to follow a set of guidelines known as the PREA standards, which say staff is supposed to report misconduct immediately if they see it. And this includes these relationships. As a juvenile offender, PREA is essentially your main form of protection against assault. But still, despite its standards and even its name being called the Prison Rape Elimination Act, facilities have a long way to go when it comes to achieving that. It may change, you know, in terms of our definition of it. They do change over time in societies. But I I just think if PREA's goal is to eliminate it, I just don't think it's possible ever. No, that's like a joke. Priya didn't work. Like, nothing really worked when it came to, like, correctional facilities. Devasi Wisdom is 21. He was in and out of Iowa's juvenile justice system starting when he was about nine years old. He said he saw staff and youth relationships happen all the time, but the unspoken rule in the facilities he was in was to keep quiet, maintain the balance, and keep the status quo. Because you got to think, if you're telling and you're, like, a juvenile, they're not going to just let you go home for telling. You're going to have to stay there. <laughs> and then every time we, every time they did, we just run around the pod yelling Priya. Like, we didn't, like, it was a joke to us because, like, no one really was going to just, oh, hello, I like to fill out a Priya. Like, they don't do that. To try to help youth feel more able to come forward and free to speak, Priya also provides this anonymous hotline for kids to be able to call at their will, but it didn't always solve the problem for believability or power struggles with staff. You can't call an anonymous number when the staff got to dial the number in for you. His joking aside, Devasi himself actually filed a Priya report against a staff member who attempted to engage in inappropriate behavior with him. It wasn't good. Looking back at it now, it's dumb. Now I'm realizing some things that I did as a kid that low-key makes no sense now. Like the Priya, like throwing all that shit on Priya, like all Priya ain't shit. It's a joke, but then actually thinking about it like, damn. But it did come in clutch when I needed it. Okay, wow. So a lot to unpack there. First, let's talk about Priya again. It's there for the protection of children in these facilities. But these incidents, these sexual assault incidents, are not always reported. And then these assaults are not always recognized. So yes, underreported. And some of these assaults are occurring within quote-unquote consensual relationships between staff and juvenile inmates. Okay. So these examples of sexual assault and sexual misconduct are one example of, as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, many widespread abuses that occur in these facilities and fall through the cracks in the system. Is that right? 
Well, yeah, unfortunately, the abuse doesn't stop at sexual assault. Here on the outside is a common belief that solitary confinement is only for the most hardened inmates, but not so. Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. A teenager locked away in isolation. Juveniles often spend 23 to 24 hours a day locked inside their cells. News 21's reporting has revealed that severe punishments like solitary confinement can actually put children's lives at stake. Reporter Chloe Johnson has been covering solitary confinement and seclusion. Chloe, we've heard of unnecessary punishments as a form of abuse in these juvenile facilities. So where does solitary confinement come into play here? Well, Matthew, what we found in our investigation is that the use of solitary is actually far too common in youth detention. Ann Kissel, he's an expert source who works with the Human Rights Watch and the National ACLU. He says that there's a general agreement among mental health professionals that solitary is really detrimental for kids. There is some consensus that removing someone from a bad situation can be helpful as an immediate intervention to acting out behavior. But That's like for 10 minutes and not for, you know, six years or a month. And not to forget the symptoms of confinement, which can include hallucinations, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, all of this according to Kissel's 2011 Human Rights Watch report. If there is behavior that is um, that is seen as threatening or that is problematic, the response from the expert perspective is you should be giving more attention, more resources and more care. But, you know, the solitary reaction is like, take everything away and then it'll make everything better. He points to a more rehabilitative approach when it comes to imprisoned kids rather than simply isolating them. But in theory, the idea is like, let's take this kid away from custody staff and put them in the care of someone who can help them, um, you know, resolve the situation. And, And in theory, you know, that shouldn't involve the use of seclusion either. Yet this was not the case for Solon Peterson, a 13 year old boy from Louisiana. They never really gave us a reason why he never got out. I think it was because they didn't know what else to do with him. So they kept him in solitary confinement to the best of my knowledge. That's Ronnie Peterson, Solon's adopted father. Early in 2019, Solon was accused of setting a roll of toilet paper on fire in his middle school bathroom. He was arrested and spent the weekend in detention. It was during court the following Monday when Solon's parents learned that their son would not be coming home. We're like the last ones to get called for juvenile court. We thought they were going to release him to us at court, which didn't happen because they said he had a previous incident where in the fifth grade he broke a red ink pen on his hand and put a red handprint on the bathroom wall. I mean, it wasn't even nothing that the police were called. He got detention for it, and we didn't even have to pay for anything. So when they said that he had a previous offense, we didn't know what they were talking about until they explained it to us because that was so minor, we didn't even think about it. Solon was sent to the Ware Youth Center in Coshada, Louisiana, an hour away from his school, where he was arrested. He reportedly never received any type of mental health evaluation, and his father said if he did, the facility would have learned that Solon actually had ADHD, along with a history of emotional trauma. A few days after his arrest, Solon was placed in solitary confinement. They said that he had uh, taken apart a lamp or something, and use that to be able to pop his door open. What was supposed to be a 24-hour hold, according to Ronnie, left Solon in a single holding cell for four days. The Petersons said they discovered Solon was placed in solitary during their first visit to the detention. When you first walk in, it's just a visitation room. It's got a table and stuff. 
sitting there like two or three holding cells at the end of the visitation room, which Solon was in, or kind of on one of the walls of the visitation room. And that's where Solon was at, was in one of those rooms. We took some clothes up there for him and took his medicine up there and gave and gave those items to the lady that met us in the visitation room. And she said that we could talk to him through the door, but she couldn't let him out and explain to us why he was in there and that he would get out either that night or in the morning. I don't even know if she said what her name was. Bridget Peterson, Solon's adoptive mother, recalls speaking to her son through a locked cell door. The only thing he had in the room was he didn't even have a true bed. He had a mat that was on the floor and a toilet. I don't even think there was a sink in there. I don't I don't remember if there was a sink in there or not, but he was going crazy in there. And by going crazy, I think he was just down. He seemed depressed, broken almost. Um, Because he was normally a very happy person. The next Sunday, Bridget and Ronnie got a phone call at two in the morning. Their son Solon was found dead in his cell. He had hanged himself with a bedsheet. Solon was the second child to commit suicide at the Ware Youth Center. Both of the deaths occurred within two days of each other. Two teenage boys took their lives within 72 hours of each other at the same juvenile detention center. Where has been dealt six alarming infractions, including a delay of mandatory mental health assessments, failing to check on residents at required times, and dangerous parts of rooms that could assist a resident in committing suicide. We don't know when exactly they found him. There's, while he's in solitary confinement, they're supposed to check on him every 15 minutes, and they didn't. And then they went and tried to falsify the records after the fact, but we had video proof that there's nobody who checked on him for over like two hours, I think it was, in the middle of the night. Ronnie attributes his son's death to mental health issues that stem from the trauma he experienced growing up in the foster care system. Because of his past of being abandoned and then being shipped around to a bunch of other places where you never really had a stable home and then being put into solitary confinement after actually getting a stable home, I think that played a big part of it. And for Solon's sister, Sierra Shalom Hall, she said her brother was failed by the juvenile justice system. It just blows my mind that every single sign just like slipped past like so many people played a role in that this happening and so many people were able to prevent it and just no one did after a public outcry louisiana passed a new law named after solon solon's law helps to establish the criteria for deciding whether or not a child should be detained at arrest sent home or to an alternative program and the law states that only children who pose a risk to public safety should be admitted into a juvenile detention and under any case a child like solon never should have been in detention let alone in solitary the only acceptable purpose for putting a kid involuntarily in a room by themselves is literally when they are when they're an active danger to others that there's going to be a risk of physical harm if they're not if if they aren't isolated and it's for the purpose of calming down that's Karen Lindell senior attorney at the juvenile law center she's actively worked to dismantle isolation practices in detention facilities across the country if you've got a young person who after 3 hours is still in that state while they're in a room by themselves, you need a different intervention. You don't need to just continue to put that person in the room for longer. And Chloe, so as the Peterson said, Solon already had mental health issues. So 
can putting a kid like Solon in detention intensify these issues that they're already dealing with? Absolutely. The cold truth is that there's a very disproportionate number of children in detention who are struggling with depression and ADHD and anxiety. Experts like Ann Kissel are recommending that children with these underlying mental health issues receive psychiatric attention rather than being placed into the juvenile justice system. And that's where the issues are really exacerbated. If a kid is losing control of themselves because of, a, of an emerging mental health or psychiatric disability or crisis is, well, then you bring in mental health uh, or behavioral health experts to, to deal with that from a kind of therapeutic perspective. And we need to be investing in other kinds of resources for the vast majority of kids who come into the contact with the system, right? Like, a, you know, 11 year old who talks back to their teacher in class because they had a bad morning because of, you know, trauma in their, in their home, or just because, you know, whatever, they skip breakfast or because they're a kid, um, doesn't need a school resource officer that comes in, pulls them out of class and puts them in the system. So knowing how hard solitary confinement is on kids, do we know how many juvenile facilities in the country still are using solitary as a cool down strategy? Well, because of the lack of data, there isn't an exact number, but it's very clear that facilities across the U.S. are struggling with this idea of a one-size-fits-all kind of punishment. Jacqueline Rodriguez was arrested at age 12 and was in and out of multiple detentions, but she says she spent her entire three-month sentence at the Hillcrest Juvenile Hall in California in complete isolation. So we don't have a specific solitary unit. But we will get just get put on lockdown and get sent to our room. So if, for the older girls that had roommates, if they were hella fucked up, they would get put in a single cell by themselves. Me, I was always in a single cell period because I was too young to have a roommate. The policy at the detention required youth to be housed with those at least two years of age in order to protect them. But for Jacqueline, it did more harm than good. There was no one in there that was 12, 13, 14, nobody. During her time at the facility, Jacqueline vividly remembers spending her weekends locked inside of a single dark cell. When we were at the juvenile at the juvenile camp and they would send us for lockdown, we were on 23-hour lockdown. We would come out for an hour a day and by ourselves. You're not allowed to have pencils in your room and shit. <clears throat> it's like a safety hazard, so all I would do is read. Read and sleep. But it was just messed up because I had no form of communicating with nobody. So that was like out of pocket. I couldn't even freaking write in a journal or nothing, like express myself. Like it was all like I'm on my own. Jacqueline said her first time being placed in isolation, she was forced to write four pages front and back stating, I will not play pranks on my roommate, in addition to a five-page essay. They came up to me, they're like, there's no room at the juvenile hall for us to take you to do your your 48 hours over there, so we're going to put you on isolation. And I was like, what the hell is that? They're like, we're just going to put you in the group room, and you're going to be there the whole freaking weekend. You're not going to come out with the other girls. You're not, you can come out to shower when they're, like, on your own, like, all that shit, but you're on your own for the whole 48 hours. But what I don't understand is, like, looking back, I just don't understand why they would do that you know like i'm hella young dude there's other ways to help me instead of freaking putting me in a room all day so seemingly minor flaws in protocol can easily spiral out of control when unchecked yeah katie easily and like eileen allen said the prison environment is what makes juvie a place susceptible to these cracks in the system or these incidents of abuse and it's hard to know things are not the way they are supposed to be when misconduct flies under the radar or if it's not taken seriously when it is reported ian kissel told us that 
practices like solitary are just side effects of a broader system that lacks both oversight and effective legislative reform. This particular practice is indicative of um, the way in which these institutions are failed institutions more broadly. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, asking a lot for a prison to stop using the most extreme form of uh, abusive practice, um, but not completely change. And in most communities, people don't care what's going on in them. The legislators don't care at the local level or at the state level. And so until those things shift and we have real independent oversight um, and transformation of these kinds of facilities, I think that you know, mistreatment in custody is, uh, is, going, to, is going to continue. This episode was produced by Matthew Henley. Assistant producers for this episode were Franco Latona, Haley Parker, and Chloe Johnson. Lane Dowdle, Victoria Traxler, Jana Allen, Jocelyn Fox, Lindsay Nichols, and Molly Cruz also contributed to this episode. Kids in Prison is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Night News 21, an investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. If you or someone you know is in need of help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK or 800-273-8255 or text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor right away. This episode was also assistant produced by me, Katie Seifer, and mixed and scored by Anthony Wallace. On the next episode of Kids Imprisoned. You're going to be released to me 25 years later as this prison-raised person who might be, at this point, a violent sexual offender, you know? And what am I supposed to do with that? He's definitely not getting any help. And... I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. And yet who else is who else is gonna love him?